Hi Hype fam, welcome to another episode of the Hypecast. Um, today we had a good mate of ours, um, Big Mo, um, who's a doctor, he's a martial artist, he's a jiu-jitsu practitioner, a former ex-professional rugby player, and to me just like a really, really great guy that epitomises what can come from hardship. So Mo is a refugee um, in this country. He was a refugee in the UK and he was also a refugee um, that was living in Egypt. He um, lost his home from a young age um, and his family's always been on the go because he was brought up in a war-torn country. So for someone to have had the level of success that he's had with such hardship and continual hardship, he actually hobbled in here on a trolley Um, because he has a broken foot and actually won't be able to walk for another year and to still have the mind frame still have the mindset that he does um man it gave me goosebumps and i think he's a great guy i think a lot of people can draw inspiration from him i know i definitely have and so much of his story resonated with me being an immigrant to the country um people often viewing you in a way that you would prefer that they didn't but they're that's the hand you've been dealt but he really just shows um, a great spirit and how to how to always flip something onto a positive. So, really hope you guys enjoy this episode. Um, it's brought to you as usual by Combat Nutrition. Um, it's basically a sports nutrition brand that myself and Miles started to basically provide the combat community with a great form of nutrition that's drug tested, clean, plant based all the good stuff so we also have a training center not far from the hype offices if any of you guys want to come in and check it out or if you want to go online and get some product you can use the code hypecast and receive 20 percent off the product so hope you guys enjoy and we'll be chatting soon thank you big mo in the house Thank you. How are you going, Thanks for having me. I'm good, man. Okay. Sorry it took so long. We um, kind of had to postpone this a couple of times yeah. this week. We've been flat out. Yeah, <laughs> we've been mental. And obviously, when we originally tried to do it um, was when you originally broke your foot. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> you were going into surgery for your broken foot. So, yeah. we had to reschedule then yeah. and then had to find another location, but made it happen. Mate. Always make it happen. Always. Dude, Always. we'll get to the broken foot. I, yeah. We'll get to the broken foot. Yeah. But before we get there... <laughs> <laughs> There's a bigger story behind it. Yeah. Tell us about Mo. Oh wow. Um I know that's broad, but just, it is it is broad. This is I mean, good. We get to we get to know you. Yeah. We've we've rolled on the mats with you, but now it's we're getting deep. Yeah, we're getting well, um it depends which part of Mo you want to know because there's 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 I always feel there's there's quite a few Mo's. Yeah. Um there's obviously professional work in Dr. Mo. Um there's the competitive athletic Mo, there's the refugee Mo. Um, th- th- there's quite a few most, and then there's Mo who talks about himself in third person. So <laughs> there's, there's 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 a few of these Mo's. Uh, Take so us like, right back to the start. So uh, originally, I mean, if you want to go all the way back to the start, originally I'm uh, I'm a Palestinian refugee. I was born in Mecca in Saudi Arabia, and the reason why I was born there was because um, you know my dad was working as a doctor there, but. When when my dad, when he was a kid, he got kicked out of uh, Palestine along with his brothers and sisters uh, and his mum. What was the reason for that? Um, there was the the war there yeah. between Palestine and uh, and Israel, and um, there was large 
sections of land that was taken away and the Palestinians that lived there had to leave. Uh, my dad, he and his family and that, they moved to Jordan. They, they literally moved with nothing but the clothes on their back and they walked from their house, which was just on the outskirts of Jerusalem, to Jordan, into yeah. tents. Um, and they went from being um, farmers to owning nothing and living in a tent. Uh, and that's how they started. And then they built themselves up from there. Um, my dad and his family then moved to Egypt three years later. And that was kind of like the general um, general way that Palestinian refugees lived in the Middle East. You just kind of had to move from place to place till to somebody let you stay. Um, and then from there, he, you know, he, he grew up. He then eventually got to medical school, which was a, a huge achievement mm. back then because, um, you know, in his class, he, he would go to a, a UN-run refugee school. So there would be him and 300 other kids in the same class. Uh, no resources, no textbooks. Um, he didn't own a pair of shoes till he was 15 years old. So he used to walk to school barefoot till the age of 15. So when he when he qualified and um, and graduated, and, he, and his results got him a place at medical school. You know, he'd only been wearing shoes for like a year and a half. Wow. You know what I mean? Um, and he had to go to medical school. Um, but even then, when he got the results to get into medical school, a rich Egyptian family bought his results. Uh, so it's quite corrupt. Obviously, over there, there's a lot of corruption. And uh, essentially, just a, a rich uh, Egyptian family came to the school and were like, yep, we, we want to take his results because we want our son to go to medical school. Yeah. So they just bought his results. Wow. And um, my dad then wasn't able to go to medical school. It was only when my granddad, who is, uh, uh, I mean, if you think I'm big, Jeez, this guy is a monster. Um, uh, you know, uh, God bless him. He um, he went to the school and just took the whole school hostage. <laughs> I mean, you know, we're talking about. I mean, this is the Middle East. Like, yeah, it's, yeah. it's it's old school over there. And he just came in, took all the teachers, locked them into a room, and was just like, "No one's leaving until we get his results back." And the thing is, is with my granddad, is, is he used to be special forces in the army, yeah. commando special forces in the army. So he he used to do like covert operations where it was him and six men going into deep into enemy lines by themselves, you know, stealing or capturing a prisoner, yeah, and then bringing them back. Like it, it, these guys were were on, on a different level. So when he when he when he when he when he takes a group of civilian teachers hostage. They're, they're in big trouble. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so they eventually gave my dad his uh, his uh, his test results back, and he was eventually allowed to then uh, to then get back into to medical school. Um, after he graduated at medical school in Egypt, um, he, he married my mum, and um, he moved to Saudi Arabia. The reason why he moved to Saudi Arabia was because it was, it was better wages for him. Um, so when he was there in Saudi Arabia, me and my two sisters were were born, and uh, my dad just. You know he couldn't make ends meet even as a doctor because he was he was a refugee he, he wasn't getting paid as much as the the other doctors at, at the hospital uh, you know there's no real you know uh, uh protection there workers rights or anything yeah. like that it's just they were like you've got to be grateful you've got a job yeah you know what i mean so um you know the first house that we lived in it was one bedroom all five of us slept in the same room uh, we didn't have uh running water in the house or clean drinking water in the house um, and uh, you know my dad my dad thought to himself I need a better life for, for my kids so um, he did uh, the blap test the blap test is uh, the uh, exam that you do if you want to work as a doctor in the UK mm -hmm. and he absolutely smashed that yep. 
um, and he, he got a job in the UK and then six months later after he moved over to the UK me and my brothers and sisters and my mum we moved over there and, uh, and, and that's when we uh, yeah and that's when the UK part of my life uh, began I was four old, years old yeah how old, old are you yeah, yeah I, was, I was four years old at the yeah, time cool. so um, did you speak English? I couldn't speak a word of English when I first arrived. Um, And that caused a lot of problems because, um, you know, when I was going to, like, uh, nursery and school and stuff like that, like, um, I just was a kid who couldn't even speak a word of English, you know what I mean? So making friends was difficult. Obviously, you know, you've gone from living in the middle of uh, the desert in the Middle East to living in this, you know, suburban you know, place in, in, in the United Kingdom, in yeah. England, you know what I mean? Surrounded by trees and grass and things like that. I mean, it was such a, it was, it was very, very uh, different. Um, I couldn't speak the language. I, I didn't understand how people were dressed. Uh, I didn't understand, you know, w- what was going on really around me. Um, but, you know, these are the, and I look back at that and I, and, and I always question, I go, was, was that, I mean, you can always look back at decisions in hindsight and you can rip them to shreds. You know what I mean? You're like, why did I do this? Why did I do that? And, you know, I look back at it and I go, you know, was moving to the UK the right decision for us? Because we, you know, we became isolated from the rest of our family. You know, it was just me, my dad, my brothers and sisters, but our aunties, uncles, cousins, grandma, granddad, like they were all back home in the Middle Mm -hmm. East. So, um, you know, I spent most of my life growing up without my family immediately around me mm-hmm. you know um and then when you grow up in a in a foreign country where you know you don't look like everyone else you don't speak the same as everyone else your, your, your food that you eat is all different and you're not surrounded by your family it, it's very isolating but it, it further probably fed into the narrative of um growing up as a refugee you know because you grow up as a refugee it essentially means that you, your home's already been taken away from you mm-hmm. so Wherever I go, I'm never home. You know what I mean? Um, but then this was even more of an impact of that. But but that was because we, we didn't have we didn't have much, you know what I mean? We didn't have much and we needed to create a life for ourselves. So to, to create a life for ourselves, the the big paradigm of all of this is was to create a life for ourselves. We had to further isolate ourselves yeah. and we had to further move away from home to create a life for ourselves. Because if we stayed around the Middle East we wouldn't have really had a life. I mean, we would have been around home. We probably could have seen the lights of Palestine. You know what I mean? In Jordan, you can see the lights and, and, and whatnot. But we would we'd still never be home and we would never have a living. You know what I mean? So that's always the... I suppose that's always the kind of like this... It's like this... It's like quicksand. You know what I mean? Like the harder that you try, the further you sink in. So when was it like that you... Did your when was it that you like integrated into the community or did you just go to school and start learning English? Did you go to school for English or, and then did your father sort of encourage you to go down that same medical route? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you go to school and, and, um, you know, obviously still young. So, you know, picking up English was, was, was pretty easy, but, um, uh, the thing is as well is because my dad, didn't have a permanent job he was just you know filling roles as a doctor so they would say this hospital is short of a doctor for six months go there for six months so he would then move to that city and he would take me my mum my and dad you know so there'd be we I was constantly moving around from place to place you know for the first two years we were there I think we moved around like three four times like completely different places 
Um, so it was very, it was very unsettling. You know what I mean? Um, there was just no consistency. And then eventually we settled in a, in a small town called Middlesbrough. And uh, there was a doctor there who's called uh, Mr. Taylor. And he was the head of the uh, Obzengaini department. And uh, he just said, about my daddy was like, this is the smartest doctor I've ever, I've ever come across. And he was like, I, he goes, I want this guy to, to work here permanently. And he offered my dad a permanent job and to train him up from a junior level to, to a boss. And, uh, and he did. And, you know, uh, I think it was 15 years later, my dad ended up taking over his practice. Cool. And my dad then subspecialized in the same thing that Mr. Taylor specialized in, which was, which was fertility medicine. And my dad now runs the most successful IVF clinic in the whole of the United Kingdom. No way. Yeah. That Hawkman. is so what fucking story. dope, bro. Yeah. What a story. That's cool, man. Yeah. He's yeah. still there? Yeah, he's still yeah. there. Wow. And, it, and it's, you know, it, it, it's quite funny because, I mean, no one would give him a job. And, you know, when he did his... Um, when he did his exams to get into medical school, he got something like the the second highest mark in all all Egypt. Yeah, you know what I mean. And uh, and then his roles got stolen. And and he did that as a, being a refugee, mm-hmm. uh, a kid, you know, w- without any resources or help or anything like that. And um, you know, I'd, I'd, whenever we'd go back to the Middle East, and you know, we'd have family gatherings and stuff like that, and I'd speak to my uncles and stuff like that. They would always tell me stories about my dad. They would say, you know, he was, he was ten years old. And when we'd all go out and play football or go in the streets and play on our bikes or whatever whatever they had, you know what I mean? I would say your dad would, would buy a candle with his money, not sweets, and he would use that to study at night, you know what I mean, to read books at night because he was he he had that vision since he was ten years old that he was gonna do something amazing. Um, That's so cool. Sick. Yeah. yeah. Love it. So yeah, like like when, when it, it's very hard to uh, no, not very hard. It just, I wouldn't be able to live with myself if, if I didn't do something with my life. If I knew that yeah. this is how much sacrifice my dad had put in mm-hmm. uh, to making a life for me, and if I didn't do something with mm-hmm. it, you know what I mean. So, um, you know, I'm always grateful for him, and you know, I always look up to him as, as an inspiration to always, you know, keep pushing myself and being better. Cause Man, with um, obviously you referenced home a few times, and yeah. knowing that um, your memories of where you were closest to home, yeah. which wasn't exactly being home at the same yeah. time but it was close do you right now long to get back at some stage is is that a desire of yours or do you are you at peace with where you're at or is it something that you keep feeling will pull you back yeah. towards that spot i mean it's um uh, it, it's difficult you know because um I think something that a lot of people um, take for granted is is family, you know. And they, uh, you know, I see a lot of people arguing between family, and I see a lot of people um, not talking to family and, and things like that. And I always look at it and I go, you know, the one dream that I've always had as a kid is just to be able to go down, not just with my mum and dad, but my cousins, my aunties, my uncles, and just to have a family barbecue or a family meal, all of us together. But that's never happened in my life mm-hmm. ever. You know, we've never had the whole family together. We've had where summers where the whole family have travelled from around the Middle East and come to say Jordan, and and we've all met up there because there's been a wedding or something. But it's not been the whole family. There's always people missing, mm-hmm. and it's not like one or two. It's, it's there's still a, a large proportion. You know, one auntie and an uncle and, and their set of kids, and the reason for that is is because they can't get a visa. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because they're still living on their refugee status, so they can't get a visa. They can't go in this time. Um, uh, 
Finn can't afford it because he doesn't have a job. You know what I mean? And, and that's just normal for 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 what we are. So, um, you know, all I, it's it's really simple. But all I ever really want is is just to see my whole family. Mm-hmm. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And just to to be there and enjoy each other's company. And I know that I am probably gonna die, and I'm never ever gonna be free in my own home you know, which is Palestine, with my family there mm-hmm. and just enjoying our, our basic freedoms together and mm-hmm. living together. That, that'll never happen, you know what I mean? Do you have family here with you or is it just you here in Australia? It, it's just me. Yeah, it's just me. And what sort of... Um, so let's keep going through the story because yeah. I'm loving hearing this. Yeah. What drove you into medical school? School Was it obviously encouragement from your family? And then was it in the UK that you started studying medicine? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean... A big part of it was my dad um, and was my family. Um, you know, my dad, uh, j- just watching how how he changed his life and, and seeing the respect that he got and every time, you know, in the summer when we'd go back home to the, to the Middle East, you know, I would see my dad, he would like be, you know, people would come from far and wide to, to visit him just because they'd need, you know, a medical consultation or whatever. And they would bring their files and their documents and he would have a look and, you know, he'd be doing voluntary work at hospitals and stuff like that. And I would always think to myself, wow, you know what I mean? Like, this guy couldn't even, you know, was barefoot, you know what I mean, a few years ago. And now we've got people, you know, we've got princes traveling just to see him, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And, and that's what an education can do. It can it can pull you up from, from nothing into something. So... Um, that was always an encouragement for me. And then the other thing was, you know, when I, when I grew up, I, I obviously dealt with a lot of bullying and racism and, and things like that. And, and the one thing that I loved about medicine was um, medicine didn't care if you were black or white, if you were homosexual, heterosexual. Um, it didn't care whether you were Muslim, Jewish or Christian. Um, you know, it, it was the same treatment. You know what I mean. If someone comes in with a knife here, it's the same. It's the same treatment. You know, they need the same blood. They they need the the same IV access. You know, mm-hmm. and and that's one thing I loved about medicine. It was just non discriminatory. You yeah, know, that's, it, it's it's huge. I remember um, in probably in a similar culture yeah. because Egypt is, is actually not that far from Ghana, which is where yeah. I'm from in oh, West yeah. Africa. Yeah, yeah. So I know that. Um, there's literally tears in terms of like how cultural views certain work yeah, yeah. and doctor because these places have so many people that are constantly sick, yeah, yeah. dying, not getting fed. Your doctor of your community is everything because yeah. that without them, you're dead. Like yeah. legit, you're probably not going to get too far because there's too many things that can kill you. So they're sat as this pinnacle of society within yeah, yeah. within their community, which obviously your dad is, yeah. and you would have been um, growing up even to a further extent if you were still over that part of the world. So it's one of those careers that I, I don't think anyone can look at any almost career as a higher yeah. place to serve people to give them health it's has the ultimate so, respect in terms of a yeah choice for sure I, I don't think there's any type of career that a lot of people go fuck you're a lawyer and that means you're a shark or you're a, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> man, yeah. being a lawyer is hard as shit and you're going to go through equally tough things as a doctor and all those things yeah. but no one ever looks at a doctor and goes ah oh, like yeah. <laughs> has like a negative connotation yeah. with because they know what they do they know what they've gone through to get there there's always a massive massive respect um in that industry and in that field so for you to have 
you did your medical school in UK as well. Yeah, yeah, did yeah. medical school, and, and yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, that, that, that's that's the thing with with it. Just has so much respect being a doctor, and um, you know, I think being a refugee as well, like you know, and not being accepted in society and and being disrespected for your whole life. Once you earn that title as a doctor, um, you get a little bit of respect, and that's something that you never had. You know, growing up, and, and and that was something that I saw in my dad. You know, I, I remember when we'd be queuing up for hours outside of, uh, you know, the immigration office and the home office, um, just to plead with them to to let us have a visa to go over to the Middle East just for summer to to see our nan, mm-hmm. you know, or our grandma, and and that would that would take weeks, months, yeah. just to just to you know. Whereas now, you know, people. You know, if you wanted to book a holiday to Bali, you could go this afternoon if you wanted to. Uh, yeah. You know, we didn't have that luxury. We couldn't move around like that. It would take months for us just to it's just friendly, to leave. Yeah. You know, isn't it funny that just two letters in front of your name yeah. can change someone's perception mm-hmm. of how you are? My dad is like, he's a doctor, but he's yeah. a doctor in engineering. Yeah. And I remember when we were in Melbourne, similar thing came over um, at twenty eight to do his PhD. Yeah. Um, just a shirt on his back. He arrived. He obviously hadn't completed his PhD. Going to the exact same places, doing the exact same things. Yeah. Couldn't get a foot in the door to do anything. Would literally people would just say leave because yeah. one, he's black. Two, yeah. large guy. So yeah. um, then all of a sudden gets the doctor in front of his name. All everything changes mm-hmm. he's the same person yeah. it's just four years later he's got yeah. through yeah. got his PhD exact same person respect everything changes but it's just a strange mm. strange thing that someone can treat you completely different just because of a title mm-hmm. that's been put in front of your name can, can we talk about that can we talk about sort of like your integration into like the Australian sort of community and yeah. dealing with racism and things like that do you yeah. do, do you think that Australia has evolved do you still feel that there is a sense of racism that still exists here what's uh, what's your view um I think I've always you see I always take a step back and I always have a look at things and I always say to myself I've got to remember that I've always got a personal prejudice and um when I look at stuff like this, like racism and stuff like that, because I know that I look at it through my own experience Mm -hmm. and therefore my glasses are always slightly tinted. Mm -hmm. So I try and always remember that when I try and look at things. So I try and be as honest as possible that I can be. I think generally on the whole, um, I think day to day, you know, Australia is not a racist place day to day. But I think if you were to look at things like on TV, the language that's used, um, Policies that the government have. Um, I, I think it's very difficult to say that Australia doesn't have some racism in the mm-hmm. background. Because surely it was built into the culture, really, Yeah, yeah. at the start. Yeah. I think it's interesting, you know, you're talking about viewing it in your own eyes. Like, mm-hmm. I'm far from racist. Yeah. So I don't understand it. Mm-hmm. But I think maybe that's because my family are wogs you know so like i grew up with that and my mom was called a wog even i was called a wog but i don't look i look australian right so it's like um i guess i never felt that but it's but i also think i always love putting myself into other people's shoes and understanding where they sit in the world and where they sit how they perceive things mentally and 
I want to view it. Yeah. So I think it's really interesting because I talked to Sel about it a little bit. Yeah. Um, I don't think you necessarily dealt with too much racism growing up necessarily. Not, not to the... I mean, with that said, I grew up in North Queensland. Like the majority of my high school years ended up there. So there's always going to be... I'll just say that there's a lot less educated people there and you're coming into a lot into a community that doesn't have as much cultural integration. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily believe that they were out to cause harm or mm-hmm. anything mm-hmm. like that, but let's face it, in a town of 60,000, call it people, let's say in Mackay, there may be 30 Africans. Like if, if you're looking at the numbers, so the, the chances of them really understanding a different culture, <laughs> a different viewpoint, like Mo said, you may eat differently, you may look differently, act a bit differently. It's just something that they probably weren't as used to. So it, it, yeah. it just leads to them maybe saying or doing things that you're like, man, it's probably not kosher, but do they know any different? <laughs> I kind of look at it in the sense of probably a lot of people will do that it's more of an education I try to look at it from that point of view rather than someone being hateful. I just think um, sometimes it's just and just the education isn't there for them to sh- to fully understand it. Surely as well, like you got to look look in like look at yourself, look back into yourself because yeah. you two, right, yeah. are probably some of the most connected, well respected sort of people in our community and our local community, and you've got so many friends and all yeah. these sorts of things. You're confident. You go and achieve what you want to achieve. You're mm-hmm. successful business people. You have a successful career and all these sorts of things. So surely it's like a personal thing. Surely it's like you hit that that fork in the road when you're younger and you're dealing with all of these strange sort of um, experiences, dealing with racism and dealing with sort of these weird energies. And you're like, yeah, no, I'm not going to buy into that shit. Yeah. I'm just going to be me. I accept me, and I'm just going to go and do my shit. And then. All of a sudden, all of that shit just falls away. But the people that sort of hold on to it or, you know, sort of like bathe in that sort of negativity, they start to go down the wrong path and start to to Mm. breed that hate and that that negativity and stuff like that. Yeah, Yeah, you definitely can play into the stereotype. Mo could play into his typical stereotype. I could play into mine. There's actually a show in the UK. Have you ever seen Balls of Steel? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 You remember the angry black militant guy? (laughs) I I love the angry black militant guy. (laughs) So it was basically a skit show that... um, It was hilarious. But they used, like, this guy. He was black. And basically... (laughs) Militant black guy was black. Yeah, the militant black guy was black. But basically what he would do would be go to areas... And then play into his stereotype of being a black guy that had a chip on his shoulder that was waiting for some I, white person to I be just, wait, just, waiting for a white guy to be racist or of any format. I, I, the, one of the funniest uh, moments of that of the militant black guy was um, he was in a park and there was um, yeah, was there was a there was and he was he was on the grass just walking around on the yeah. grass of the park and there was a sign that clearly said keep off the grass yeah so the warden of the park walks up to him and goes hey excuse me can you keep off the grass and he goes and then like every time someone says something like the siren goes off sirens the goes off <laughs> and the screen starts going yeah. crazy and then he goes keep off the grass yeah oh because i'm black i'm yeah. on the grass yeah but <laughs> Do you know what I thought was the funniest one? Do you remember when he went into the supporters store and it was around the World Cup for rugby? Oh, and he the, goes the, the, and he's so, yeah, so he walks into this sports store and he's yeah. sitting there just going, "Excuse me, sir, I'm looking for a jersey. I believe it's the New Zealand team and 
they're the World Cup champions and <laughs> their jersey is a different colour, but I think it's... And the guy goes, oh, you, you want a jersey for the All Blacks. And so he takes that as a siren and a trigger and he just starts turning the store upside down. So <laughs> moral back after going through that comedy skit is it's easy to play into the yeah. stereotype. The society has told you that you're yeah. black, there's racist people, you should yeah. get angry about it, you should always be yeah. angry, yeah. fuck the world type of thing. And yeah. Mo can play into this stereotype of he's from Palestine and he like goes like everyone's against him and yeah. you, you can easily do that or you can look at it the other way and you say look I've been given these great opportunities mm. yeah. um, I really want to make something of it yeah. some people may not understand yeah. what I do or who I am but I know deep down I've got a good message and I want to yeah. keep doing good things I agree with that and I, you know sometimes you have to bite your tongue you know sometimes you know some situations are a bit ambiguous and you're not sure whether it is just a racist element or whether it's just this person's just a twat, you know? You you don't know. But, you know, if you do play into that victim mentality, you're always going to handicap yourself because you're always going to assume the worst and therefore you're always going to keep pulling yourself back. So, you know, I always, like you said, you know, a lot of it is, isn't racism. A lot of it is ignorance. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why I, like, I, you know, I give people the benefit of the doubt. You know, some people say, I remember when I was at work before, um, back in the UK as a doctor, and I was, I was walking through the corridor, and it was um, me and one of my colleagues. And he was, he was a black guy. He had dreadlocks. And um, the nurses were like, oh, my God feel his hair oh my god oh my god to, to, to this to my colleague this black guy with like feeling his dreadlocks and like that that is racist you know what I mean it's 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 quite derogatory because you know it was literally in this lifetime in some people's lifetimes there was black people in uh, zoos that were getting petted and their hair felt yeah. and stuff like that and, and, and you know white people thought that that was amusing and, and now there was this doctor walking through the corridor and the nurses were patting his head and feeling his hair yeah. they don't understand Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, that, uh, and they don't understand the feelings that that will bring mm-hmm. with him. And I and I straight away turned around to him and went, "Hey, bro, are you okay?" Mm-hmm. And he just kind of like shrugged and laughed it off. He was like, "Yeah, they probably just don't know." Yeah. And I went, I went, I went, bro. You know, like this is. I, I, I said to him, I said, "This is probably the fourth or fifth incident that's happened in the last, you know, two weeks yeah. of of things like this that have happened to me or you mm-hmm. in our own workplace environment, yeah. and it's." And I don't think that the people are racist here. Mm-hmm. The people just don't understand. Yeah, ignorance is a perfect word for it. Yeah. It's so interesting. Yeah. So interesting. So, man, from and leading into this, because I think um, obviously the struggles of your family and everything gave you a fortitude that um, is unbreakable that most people wouldn't understand. But to give people a highlight of that, getting through doctor school, going through to become a doctor in anything is brutally tough. Whilst you were doing this, you were playing professional sports as a rugby player. Yeah, I was. Yeah, um, I was. Uh, I was. I originally. It was quite funny because when I arrived at medical school, I'd, um, I'd I was playing just for a local rugby team, um, and then I moved to medical school in Liverpool, and I didn't really want to play rugby anymore. You know, I thought oh, I better focus on on my studies and whatnot. And I remember on the uh, at the fair, you know, the freshers' fair, you know, yeah. where all the first years come around and they all start picking what societies they want to join and what clubs they want to join. And the rugby coach that was there was a guy called Ken, and he looked at me and he went, "Oh, you're a big lad. Have you played rugby before?" 
And I was just like, I was like lying to him. I was like, no, no, I've never played rugby. And he was like, oh, I think you should. I think you should. And I was like, no, no, I don't know how to play. He was like, look, I'll pay your membership, you know, just come to the training session tonight. So I thought, what have I got to lose? You know what I mean? I mean, I do enjoy playing rugby. Why not just go there and see what it's all about? And then I went and I played and then, um, you know, I got picked for the team. I originally, because I was the first year, I was put into the second team. But after like four games, I'd scored something like, like 13, 15 tries or something in four games and I was a prop. Um, so they moved me into the first team. And then after about four games for the first team, the, the first team coach was like, hey, I want to, I think you should go to Sale Sharks. And I've spoken to the coach there. We're going to get you a trial. Now, Sale Sharks just had won the premiership. Yeah. And he wanted me to go there to have a trial. Um, and I remember at the time I was like, I'm a first year student here. I'm living in residential halls. I'm broke. And he wants me to go and, you know, to Manchester to, to go and have a trial match with these guys. So, you know, I jumped at the opportunity. I was like, yeah, I'd love to. Um, and he was like, right, okay, you, you're playing this weekend. I was like, oh my God, like I've, I've got no time here to mentally prepare. And um, I remember, you know, they said that you'd be on the bench. I'd be starting I'd be on the bench and I'd be coming on. I'd be getting about 20, 30 minutes and they're going to see how I go at this level. And uh, it was the Leicester Academy, uh, Leicester Tigers against Sale Sharks. Now, Leicester Tigers at the time were, you know, the, the out and out champs of the, of the, of not just, uh, English rugby but European rugby um, and um, I uh, I was I was broke so the, the boots that I had were from boots for like a year and a half ago and they were like torn to pieces but that's all I had so I um, when I arrived at the at the game um, the sale academy manager just comes up to me and he goes oh by the way you're starting the prop that's meant to be starting is called in and he's ill so you're starting and I was like right okay this is not what I expected but on the Leicester Tigers team I don't know you heard of uh, Manu Tuolangi yeah Manu Tuolangi was playing for Leicester Tigers and so was George Ford they've both just played in the World Cup starting for England you know what I mean and they're both amazing players but they were they were they were playing against me and um, the whole team was like there were so many international representations in both teams. It was like England under 20s, Scotland under 20s, Wales under 20s, and then there was just Mohammed Mustafa, Liverpool University. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> no international representation. And, um, you know, before the game started, I went to the physio, and I didn't go to the physio to get strapped. I went to the physio because I needed him to tape my boots together yeah. because they were, they were, they were ripped. Yeah. Um, so he, he'd spent about like 10 minutes just taping my boots together so I could go play and there was more tape than boot you know what I mean just to hold them together and uh, played the game and I ended up getting man of the match and uh, he uh, you know the the coach at the time the the manager and the coach at Sale Sharks was Jason Robinson I don't know if you remember Jason Robinson but a bit of a legend of rugby union but he was the guy that uh, scored the winning uh, or one of the tries that winning won the World Cup in Australia in 2003 and he was the guy on the Gillette adverts and he's just you know he's one of the greatest players of all time and he was the coach and he's someone I used to watch as a kid and he just came up to me and he went I'll see you at training on Monday and I just I was just absolutely like God so I was like oh my God so what then happened was is 
I turned up to training and they'd kind of seen that my boots were were torn. So they, uh, when I arrived, one of the players who was sponsored by Adidas, uh, he came up to me, had a box, and he opened up the box and there was some brand new Adidas Predators and he went, here, these are for you. Um, yeah, I was just I was just absolutely gobsmacked. And then I started training with the Sail Sharks first team. And, I, you know, I was 19 years old. Yeah. <laughs> and I was training with this professional rugby team. And I didn't have a car or anything like that. So what used to happen was, is, um, to get the training, I used to wake up at like half four. I used to walk down to the bus station. I used to get the bus from Smithdown to Liverpool Lime Street. And then I'd get the train from Liverpool Lime Street to Manchester Piccadilly, which would be about an hour. Yeah. Okay. And then I'd get the tram from Manchester Piccadilly to Sale. And then from Sale, I'd get the bus, bus from Sale yeah. to Carrington Lane. And then I would then walk a mile <laughs> to get the train. And, 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 you know, if I had a car, it would take me 50 minutes this journey. But because I didn't, it, it would take like two hours and a half just to get there. And um, at Carrington Lane, where Sale train, is Manchester United and Manchester City. They all train there and sales are kind of in the middle. So it's quite funny because when you walk in, when you when I was walking um, to get to training, uh, you would just see these like Ferraris and Lamborghinis and Bugattis and, and all these cars just driving past you because it was all the Manchester United and, yeah. and Man City players all just, you know, driving the thing. Uh, there was a couple of times that I got a, a lift off a couple of the players because uh, they'd seen me so many times yeah. they would stop in their like, Lamborghinis and they'd go hey do you want to do you want to lift no, and then you know cruising on a Lamborghini yeah. um, so, so there was that and then you know I played uh, I played in the academy um, and then a year later I got um, I got England students trials made the England team um, and then after that I signed a professional contract with Leeds and I played for Leeds for two two seasons while I was at medical school, and you know I, I was at medical school in Liverpool, and I was playing for Leeds, and Leeds is like an hour and a half away. So I used to, you know, back back then I would I would, I would be balancing the two together. So I'd be getting up at half four in the morning. I would drive down to Leeds, um, I would train with the first team. I would drive back. I would go straight to placement. You know, at like twelve thirty one o'clock. Um, I would stay till five at hospital doing whatever. I'd go to the library. I'd study. I would um, catch up on any university work that I had. I would go home at like eight, nine o'clock. I would do my washing, meal prep for the next day, um, and I would go to bed. And I'd be up again at four o'clock in the morning to repeat it all again. Uh, and I did that for like two years. Um, and it was it was hard work. You know, didn't see many people didn't socialize very much it was just a lot of focus on on getting that done but you know I, I think I was the only person in the UK at the time who was doing a full-time medical degree and playing full-time professional sports I think I was the only person in the, in the UK doing a full-time medical degree like a full-time not part-time or anything like that yeah. I had to hand in all my assignments on time I had to turn up to all the things and everything like that and then every weekend I was playing up and down the country uh, you know professional rugby um, and that was when I was, you know, 21 years old. Uh, your stories can relate quite a lot, don't they? Yeah, it's really real interesting. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Mine, mine was. Um, I was playing professional, um, or I was in the Titan squad. But mm. at the same time, I was working because it was yeah. like kind of at that stage where I'd finished uni. I'd originally wanted to go and keep doing the masters of exercise yeah. science. Yeah. Get that, then become a doctor. Yeah. In ex-phys, but. Then at the same time, I kind of looked at it and just went, man, this, I've got to get into this workforce. Yeah. Um, 
but I also wanted to make it um, mm. professionally in sport and I thought I need to do both I, I couldn't drop one or the yeah, other yeah, because yeah. like my parents always had this rule that they would no matter what happened within our household you had to have your education first yeah education first Mm-hmm. you work second to provide an income for yourself your family mm-hmm. and yeah. anyone else right. and then sport was always the third priority it had to sit as third because yeah. guess where where uh, you come from fifth sixth seventh. yeah, yeah. They're, they're, yeah. They're so against oh man i can relate intrinsically because i was like previous tennis then rugby and the only re- i explained it to him i said i know physically and just mentally I have a better chance of making it in sport professionally if I go towards yeah. rugby than if I go towards tennis and they were just firstly they were like sport like <laughs> what are you talking about anyway yeah. like th- this is a hobby type of thing I'm like yeah. nah like because yeah. in those kind of cultures there's there's three options for yeah. you as a kid doctor engineer exactly dis- disgrace yeah those are the, <laughs> that, three, options. the three options 100 you, know I mean? you, you can't be anything else yeah. yeah and so my dad was the engineer and i was like like straight i think i remember it pretty distinctly at 10 almost going to him i said engineering is cool i can tell you i'm not going to be an engineer yeah and that was already a, like a big issue but yeah, i was just yeah. like telling him that yeah. i will finish all education and do yeah. everything but I don't enjoy this, yeah. so I know how I personally work. Yeah. I'm not going to continue and do this. Yeah. I'll work myself to the bone, but I won't do yeah. it within engineering, which is another thing because he worked so hard to build a company and there was probably the thought process that I would take over his company and then yeah. my kids would take over his company and it would go in that cycle, yeah. which I was honest straight up that that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. I really want this professional sport and I want a career, but a career that... I enjoy mm-hmm. that's not mm-hmm. being dictated to me because mm-hmm. of this traditional African lineage that yeah. is supposed to supposed to happen. So yeah. obviously, you know, we're all built with. We don't probably don't even call it work ethic, but work ethic is like a sensitive topic mm-hmm. in Australia at the moment. Mm-hmm. I think it is anyway. Mm-hmm. There's so much about mental health. There's so much mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. burning yourself out and all of these things. Mm-hmm. Yet mm-hmm. you were doing all of these things to play. You know, professional sport and, you know, get your medical degree and all of these sorts mm-hmm. of things. Mm-hmm. Work ethic is just not even a thing for you. It's just life. Yeah. How, yeah. Do, how do you sort of relate to people sort of in our society right now who sort of complain about work but yet want all of the results that come with work? You know, I, you know it, it's interesting because, like, I mean, I... Like, don't get me wrong, that there are where I have like lazy days, you know, and I'm just watching TV all day and I'm, you know, I don't get out of bed or this, that, and the other. But um, with regards to like work, I think I just, when one thing a lot of my friends always say is just, I just don't get tired. Mm-hmm. They say, oh, you just don't ever seem to get tired. You've, you've been functioning off five hours sleep yeah. for the last two weeks and you've been doing that while playing, you know, sports and doing exams and, and you're still you're smashing the sports and you're smashing it in the exams how are you doing all of this and I tell them I tell them, I'm, not, I'm exhausted right. you know it, it's not that I'm not tired like the feeling is there but I just I just choose to, to understand that that is just part of the process exactly. being tired is just yeah. part of it you know it's and 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 it, you know and being burnt out being tired social isolation all of those things are part and parcel of it I, and I, you can't complain about it you know I want to 
be successful in Agreed. sports and so, I want to be a doctor so this is this is the price and that's so is yeah, it the, just that people buy into the exhaustion and man, then they stop yeah I what Mo said like resonates with me so much in the aspect of if that's what you want you have no right to complain yeah. like if, if you if you in with every fiber of your being want to be the doctor the sports yeah. star the lawyer the accountant whatever it is you have to you sign the contract like you, do you sign think the contract do you think there's a misunderstanding about that contract though do you think there's a yeah, misunderstanding well, about how much it actually needs to go in to create success no, I think everyone's fully aware you know one thing that really frustrates me when I'm at work in hospital is, is when I speak to the uh, when I refer a patient to the surgeons it could be general surgeons orthopedic surgeons it could be any type of surgeon but they, they work really really hard right and they have to jump through a lot of extra hoops to be a surgeon that doesn't involve any kind of surgery they just have to do stuff for the sake of doing stuff because it's so competitive that you know the surgical boards will be like right you have to have published research and it's like well you know the guy's working 90 hours a week and you want them to to publish a research article you know what i mean and do a phd for three years it's not going to make them a better surgeon you know what i mean i'd rather they spend that three years perfecting their craft of actual surgery but you know you refer a patient to them and they're, they're all like got an attitude with you and arsy and you know shouting and very like i just i always tell them, I go mate you know this is what you signed up for like i understand that you're busy but i've just referred to you another patient you know what i mean i'm i'm going to help you as much as i can because i'm going to do as much work as possible for you i'm going to do all the legwork for you right here so all you have to do is just say yes to the patient but yeah. unfortunately this is another patient that you have to see but this is your job mm-hmm. you want it to be a surgeon yeah, yeah. you know what i mean you're going to be driving around in the Ferrari, the Audi, whatever you want to be driving yeah. around and when you own your own private practice in 20 years time or whatever. But, you know, unfortunately, you're going to have for the next how many years, you're going to have no social life. Yeah. You sign that dotted line. Don't come here and give me an attitude. Yeah. I'm not I'm not going to sit here and I, take this attitude from you. You know what I mean? Like you've just got to, you've got to change your attitude. I think a big part of it is um, if, if you guys think back to your parents' time or anything like that. So my dad became a doctor in engineering and mm. all he knew was other doctors in engineering and his um, professor that was teaching him in his community. Yeah. And all of them were grinding. So yeah. they're all together grinding, yeah. doing this, doing what they need to do so they would feed off each other and just keep hustling and working. Yeah. But there was nowhere where he would be sitting at Melbourne Uni and then going from there to being a cab driver and going from there to be a dishy and then going from there to pick me up from creation and going from there to... Yeah. The story goes on that he would stop, look at his phone see a photo of some other doctor and go, oh, that doctor got all this because he has a big ass yep. or anything like that. So I honestly, I know everyone thinks that I'm in this social media, like hate rant, but I definitely know that has a massive aspect of people thinking they're shortcuts yep. and people thinking that someone that got this success may have got it from looking good, like that these things happen but it was never highlighted as much before and so all these people think like Mo's a doctor but they may see Mo get certain perks for being a doctor because he's done 10 years of this those perks that are seen maybe on social media or whatever it may be they don't know any of the history they don't know any of the backstory Mm -hmm. they've never sat and hustled and grind with him or anything like that but they see the perks Mm -hmm. so when things get tiring or they feel exhausted their thing is well 
he's there or whoever it is doing this and they're killing it or doing whatever it is. But because they haven't seen the full lineage of the history and everything that's gone into it, they start to complain, Mm -hmm. they start to whinge, they start to say things are unfair when it's completely not. It's just the process is skipped in so many aspects. I think an example of that is um, the locksmith. I always use the locksmith as an example. You know, when you're locked out of your house and you call the locksmith to come and he comes and in three minutes he's unlocked your lock and he's got you into the house and then he charges you something like $200 and you're like going that was five minutes work and you're like yeah it was five minutes work but it was also three years of training that made that five minutes of work you know what I mean and that's what you're paying for is the three years of training exactly not the five minutes of work yeah Uh, yeah, it's it's never ending that, that type of process but I think the other thing that happens is you start to hear those complaints and it's easy for you as a person if you have done what Mo's done being a doctor and then sports and then now going into the martial arts and everything to get fucking proper frustrated with it because you know how much you've done and then you hear the complaints and man it's it's one of those things that triggers me instantly like I'll hear it and I'll go like I'll instantly like bridge up and almost want to say something and then I have to remind myself it's not maybe your place to say this person's on their own path they've been born into this yeah. social media world or anything like that they may have come from a different background whatever it may be you can advise them mm-hmm. you can say hey have you thought about looking at it from this time point but i guess it's also important not to like harp or preach or push something on them because they just a lot of the time just don't understand mm-hmm. and, and they it may take them another 40 years to fully understand what what that process looks like. 100%. Yeah. Tell us about getting into martial arts. When did you start martial arts and why did you start it? So it was quite interesting because um, after I played professional rugby for a couple of years, I, um, I ended up getting injured and I ended up dislocating both shoulders and I ended up having uh, four surgeries on my shoulders and I ended up getting dropped from every rugby team. Um, I tasted a real bitter pill of uh, of professional sports. You know, I um, I went from being uh, the doctor rugby player to literally nothing. You know, I I lost my sports scholarship at university. I um, I couldn't play rugby at the level that I knew that I could play at because of my injuries. And one surgery, you know, didn't work, and then I had to have another and another and another. And uh, I ended up, you know, twenty three months of rehab two different, you know, four different shoulder surgeries. And uh, I remember I got a phone call from this local regional rugby team that I was playing for. And they were like, uh, yeah, don't bother coming into training tomorrow. Um, you're not going to be picked anymore for the rest of the season for the team. And I remember just, you know, being absolutely blown away by that because I'd, I'd played for this team. I used to um, drive an hour and a half to get to you know those those closer teams where I lived to play for, but I played for them because I thought you know these these guys took me on when I was injured and and I'm a loyal guy so you know I'll I'll go play for them even though it does take a lot out of my time and day and I you know I don't really get financially rewarded for it I'll I'll do it, um, but they basically they just didn't want to pay the money that they were paying me but the money barely covered covered fuel costs you know what I mean um, and I just kind of like was left with this real bit of pill in my mouth where I was like you know I've sacrificed everything you know I've I've been at university here and you know people have been out partying and having a good time and this and that and I've put my body my soul everything for this 
and it just gets cruelly taken away when I injure my shoulders and, and now people don't even want to know and this is the other thing that people you know people don't see is you know they see all this success but you know when it gets taken away you know everyone wants to be around you when you're successful mm -hmm. but when it gets taken away no nobody cares mm -hmm. nobody nobody wants to know you know what I mean and um, I lived in Liverpool right next to this MMA gym and I lived there for like three years never once thought about going in and I remember after that phone call I just went for a walk um, just to kind of you know clear clear my head and I saw that gym and I just thought well I need to get fit again why not you know I don't want to do it doing rugby anymore um, not anyway right now why not just go to this gym and just see what it's all about? And I went into this gym. There was a guy called Jason Tan, and he was. Uh, what was the name of the gym? It was called the MMA Academy. That's the one. Is that that's the one. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. what I was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, there was a guy called Jason Tan in there, and when I walked in, you know, the first thing that he said to me was, "He was like, you're a big boy." He said, "We're going to make you a world champion," and I just thought, "This is the spiel." He probably gives every schmuck that comes mm. in. Um, into the doors but um, he was deadly serious about it and uh, I did my first jiu-jitsu session absolutely loved it and then just coming back I had shoulder surgery again like three months later I had another shoulder surgery but I still would keep coming back and keep training um, after about like um, I think it was six months of training jiu-jitsu they entered me into a tournament as a white belt and I absolutely smashed it so they then entered me into, like a month later, they entered me into a blue belt tournament, even though I was a white belt. Yeah. So um, I won like quadruple gold in that tournament. I won the gi my weight class and the gi open class. And then I won the no gi my weight class and open class as a white belt, but competing with yeah, the blue boys. belts. Yeah. And, um, you know, it just went from, from strength to strength and, and I kept getting better and better. And then, um, you know, I then moved then to Scotland to Glasgow that's when I got my first job as a doctor and uh, I um, I competed at the European Championships well I competed at the British won the the, the English title won the British title won the Nagar Advanced Dublin title then I went for the European title and I won double gold European Nogi champion and then I went to the Worlds the IBJF Worlds at uh, in Los Angeles and I got the bronze medal at the Worlds mm -hmm. and um you know how was that as an experience it was amazing um you know i was there as a full-time doctor mm -hmm. working 80 hour weeks and i turned up to los angeles on my own um to go and compete at this tournament and um you know when i walked in i was like oh, you don't realize how big other human beings are until you go and and you see places like america and and stuff like that because you know they just have athletes there yeah. and when I was warming up in the bullpen there was like there was guys that were like 6 foot 7 320 pounds 360 pounds and you're just looking up and you're like what the how am I gonna how am I gonna am I gonna yeah. handle this you yeah. know what I mean the guys who were collegiate wrestlers you know what I mean who were competing there were guys who were judo black belts that had competed at the Olympics we're all warming up in my bullpen and I was just thinking oh my god like I'm I'm really up against it you know what I mean and I had no coach. I was literally just there on my own. But, you know, I 
something that I've always had, which is self-belief. I've always believed in myself and I've always believed in my ability. And I've never let anyone tell me um, differently. You know what I mean? You obviously have dents in your confidence here and there, but I've, I always I always have self-belief. And uh, I just said to myself, you know what, Mo, you've not come this far to lose. You know what I mean? Let's do this. You know what I mean? And for me, it meant a lot more than just doing the world. For me, it was like, you know, this is me at the world stage here, you know, three and a half years later after my shoulder surgeries yeah. and losing my professional rugby contract, I was like, this is me showing everyone what I can do, you know, overcoming. And, um, you know, I went I went in there and um, I... Uh, I got the I got the bronze and I was uh, I was I was absolutely chuffed. The guy that I lost to was the guy who was the eventual winner, yeah. and uh, he was a an, a, an Olympic uh, he was an, a, a judo Olympian. Yeah. So I was a blue belt in jiu-jitsu and he was a a black belt judo Olympian. You know yeah. what I mean? It was uh, <laughs> it was uh, I was up against it, but you know I was really proud of myself because I was like you know I lost to a world champion. I lost to a guy who's a black belt in in, in a very similar martial art as well. Yeah. And I'm just a blue belt, and I, and I, I came here on my own. He had his whole crew with him. Every competitor had their own. All yeah. their gyms with him. And I was just on my own. Yeah, and I was really happy. Um, and that's when I suddenly started thinking to myself, well, you know, if you can do this work in eighty hour weeks, and you can get the bronze at the worlds, hey, what happens if you had a bit more time to train? What happens if you you know, take the next step and do MMA. And that's when I started then training, you know, my striking and wrestling and, and this. And, and this was still in the UK or you moved to? I moved to the, to Australia uh, like two months later after that. And was that what, what spurred that, the aspect of a different lifestyle? And yeah, a different lifestyle, more time to train, more, you know, a better work-life balance. And, and, and that's what I wanted to do. Obviously, so, like, you know, since I got here, unfortunately, I've not really found that. The, the right place to to train. How long have you been here? Uh, two years. And was was it a hard decision? Obviously, knowing your family's in the UK, they're the last, yeah. the small, the smallest bit of your community. Knowing that you never were able to get the full community of your family that you wanted to make that yeah make I that mean, decision. It, 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 yeah, it was such a tough decision, you know. And I, you know, I, I, again, you know, it, it's like that. Uh, it's like that mentality where I, I know what, what what we signed up for. I know whatever decision I really make in my life, it's always going to be difficult. You know, it's never going to be easy. And um, for any little bit of good, there's always something that it's going to take away. Just unfortunate. That's just the unfortunate situation I live in. You know what I mean? Um, when people want a better life for themselves, they go, "All right, yeah, I might have to move here or do this," but they can always go home and their family's always there or whatever. There's none of that. If I move to Australia, like my family are dotted all around the world. You know what I mean? I. I know it's going to be almost impossible to see them all. Let me say one thing with that. I actually think that makes you more dangerous in everything that you do. In the aspect of, you probably see quite a lot of this, like someone go, I'm going to go do this. But they have a safety net. So they've got their little parachute. And if things get tough, scary... You pull the cord, eject, go back to whatever you were doing. You're like, I kind of tried, but it didn't work out. Whereas if you're all in you have no option like that that makes people i find people are at their best when they're 100 percent all in you free fall you skydive or whatever there is no parachute like you you're 100 percent all in and so yeah. for that aspect obviously i haven't known you for ages but when i found out a bit about your story which is why i wanted to get you on so much i knew that you were all in being a doctor 
all in being a martial artist, yeah. all in previously with your rugby and yeah. everything like that, which is something that's obviously that me and Miles highly respect in, yeah. in that aspect of everything you're doing. And then most recently, you're a doctor, man. You obviously don't yeah. need to fight in a cage. No. <laughs> so that's like yeah. m- most people's stereotypical doctor yeah. isn't treating them during the whatever the hours are and then going, all right, it's Saturday night. I'm going to step in and do my first um, amateur fight. Tell us, just give us a bit of a background. Obviously, you came here. You wanted to see how far you could go with martial arts. You still will see how far you can go, but you took the steps to get in an MMA cage, probably, I would say, as someone that's played some professional sport before, I think the ultimate challenge in any type of sport, any type of competitive arena, I think is going against another trained man that has been training for a camp, whatever significant period, and testing your skills against theirs, your mental fortitude against theirs. Tell us about the experience. Well, I mean, it was it was a, it was an amazing experience. I was I was really really nervous yeah. uh, going into the fight, and um, you know, I trained really really hard. I'd lost a lot of weight. I'd um, I mean, I suppose you guys had seen me. I'd come in to your gym and I'd, I'd sparred and I'd trained, and I was I was feeling I was feeling so good. You know, I'd been I'd been sparring all around the world and training all around the world, but I'd, I'd um, you know I'd sparred with some of the best guys in Australia, whether it was some of the best boxers in Australia, um, Australian heavyweight champs, regional champs. I sparred with UFC fighters who were world ranked UFC fighters, and I you know I was doing really really well. Um, and I remember, you know, being so nervous. Um, oh God, that's about a cough. Um, I remember being um, so nervous uh, walking out to the cage, and uh, there was just so many things running through my head. I was like, "Oh my God, what if? What if you get embarrassed? What if you fail? What if you lose? What if this? What if that?" And I look back at that now, and I go, "Probably the wrong." the wrong mindset you know what I mean I shouldn't be thinking what if something goes wrong I should just be thinking you're going to win you know what I mean and that should be the mindset but obviously all of these things are a learning experience mm-hmm. it's the first time you're doing it so mm-hmm. um, it's good to, to experience all of these things regardless of whether they were the right thing or the wrong thing um, it just leads you to get to the right place and um, you know I stepped in there and uh, there was there was no fear I just you know all the fear had just gone and I just felt I just felt I was, I was like Mo like you've you know you don't need to be in this cage but here you are you don't need to be in front of all these people but here you are you don't need to be as skilled a martial artist but here you are you're a world medalist in jiu-jitsu you're striking and you're boxing against the best boxers in the country and you're striking against the best strikers in the country you, you've got this you can do this and the fear had just went and I just it just was um, it was just confidence and um, yeah I um, I uh, fight started off really really well Um, you know I was landing my punches I was doing really really well I had him up pinned up against the cage Um, and then when I tried to pick him up um, I got a single leg on him and I picked him up and when I picked him up and I had him up in the air I, I, I rolled my foot and that's when I broke my foot. No way. Yeah. Is that, that what happened? That was the moment that I broke mm. my foot. And that was about, um, that was about, oh, about yeah, just over a minute into mm. the fight. 
Did you feel it straight away? I I um I felt an initial sharp pain, mm-hmm. and that's why I had to put him down. Because yeah. I had him up. Yeah. You know what I mean? And and all I needed to do was slam him. Um, but I felt that sharp pain, and I just had to put him down. And then once I put him down, um, the striking had completely gone because when I tried to jab on that front leg that I left foot that I broke when I would step onto my front leg there was no support obviously knowing now what I know mm-hmm. is it was it was broken in four different places so I didn't have a foot essentially you know so I couldn't really feel it because of the adrenaline but there was no stability mm-hmm. so I would I would I would throw a jab and I would just kind of wobble yep. and fall into his punches so he would throw a punch and you know when you're when you're striking you you're on your tiptoes and you you're moving in and out and you only miss a punch by an inch or two you know when you when you move your head back but but the problem was was I, I didn't have any of that leverage so he was throwing a punch and I could see it coming mm-hmm. and I didn't realize this at the time I just thought I was freezing up because of the adrenaline but when I look back at it it's just like there was just no movement in my in my front foot yeah. you know what I mean if I was more experienced, I probably would have switched stances and, and stood southpaw and maybe had a bit more leverage with my with my front leg and maybe given me a bit of more movement. But it's my first fight. And yeah. to break your foot in four different places within 60 seconds, you know what I mean? And, um, you know, I kept, um, I kept fighting on. And I still was doing really well, you know what I mean? Like he was landing big punches on me and I was landing big punches on him. But, um, you know... What had happened was, was then I pinned him up against the cage again, and I was landing some good punches on him. But when I took a, a step back to land some more punches on him, um, I started falling backwards because I just didn't have any purchase on that on that foot. And then when I was falling backwards, he then was landing clean punches on me while I was throwing backwards, and that's and that's when essentially the the, the fight uh, essentially came to an end. Mm-hmm. Um, tell tell us about the raw emotions and everything after that. After all that preparation, I, t- I tell you what, man. I've, I, you know, I've I've been through some hard times in my life. You know what I mean. I've, I've been through um, a lot of difficulty in my life, but you know, I went through four surgeries, twenty three months of rehab. I lost my professional rugby career. You know what I mean? When, when it was my shoulders, and they said to me, "You're never going to play professional or high level sports again." You know, it's a really serious injury that you've got there, and I refused to give up. You know, and three years later, I became a world medalist in, in a completely different sport, a European champion in a completely different sport, while while being a, a doctor. You know what I mean? When when you know, I had, I had even more time restriction than I did as a as a medical student. However, unfortunately, I um, I also had uh, um, it, it, I, I trained for so hard for this you know what I mean and and I know how good my skill set is I know how good I am you know what I mean I've I've stood in that cage with some of the best fighters in the world and I've held my own you know what I mean um, and that's on the striking side of things and on the grappling side of things I, you know I've proved it I've won world medals and European titles but um, I remember when I when I stood up and I, I was like oh my, my foot really hurts and once we got out of the cage, I was limping, mm-hmm. and then once we got backstage, I couldn't even stand up on my foot anymore, mm-hmm. you know, because the adrenaline one, I couldn't even stand up. And then five minutes later, not only could I not stand up, it was agonizingly painful. And I, um, I just, 
I was, I was, I was devastated. I was heartbroken because I was like, you know, I've overcome so many injuries. I've overcome so many odds to get into that cage, and uh, to lose in front of all these people that have come to watch me, to be injured. Um, I was, I was hoping it wasn't a serious injury. I was hoping I'd be back within a few months. You know what I mean? But then I got taken uh, to hospital 20 minutes later, and. Um, they did a an X-ray, then they did a CT scan, and you know it was quite funny because the the doctor didn't quite pick it up what was wrong because um, the injury that I have is is called a Liz Frank fracture, and it's the most missed uh, foot injury in emergency departments. Um, it's very subtle changes on an X-ray. It's a very devastating injury, and if it's not treated, you won't be able to walk. So it's a pretty bad injury, and. Um, my mate who came with me to the hospital is, a, is an orthopedic doctor and I'm an emergency doctor so you know we we both knew I knew and he knew I looked at him and he looked at me and I said I said bro I think that's a Liz Frank and he went yeah no it is a Liz Frank and I'm like oh, man, oh my god I, I can't believe that um, you know I went then to, to another hospital a few days later and uh, they rescanned it again and they said yep yeah, it's, it's a Liz Frank and you're going to need surgery so they booked me in for surgery for the following week because they needed the swelling to go down. Um, and then I had the surgery. After I had the, the the surgery, you know, the surgeon he he said to me, you know, your he said we thought it would be one or two bones that we needed to to screw back into place. He goes, but when we examined the foot, when we opened up your foot, he goes, it was it was about four of the five metatarsals were all loose, and we had to screw them all in. Um, so the procedure that they thought would take about an hour took about two and a half hours um, screwing it all in place um, because it's not just the bones that were dislocated out of their place it's a tear of all the ligaments in the foot and it's obviously a very large it's, well, it's, it's, a, it's, it's the most weight bearing yeah. place you know it's your foot and it's not just weight bearing once or twice or a few times a day it's constant whenever you walk whenever you do anything it's always going to bear the weight so the healing time is a long, long time. So I'm three months completely non-weight bearing, not allowed to put any weight through that foot. Um, and then after that, I can start putting some weight through that foot, but then I have to do my rehab and strengthen it. Um, and then three months after that, so at the six-month mark, I have to have another surgery, and then they remove the pins and screws, and then I do another six months of rehab mm -hmm. until I'm able to run again. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be 12 months, uh, they say. Obviously... I've got my own plans, you know what I mean? Dr. Mo has got his own <laughs> his own ideas about what he's gonna do and how he's gonna do it. So um you know, and, and it's lucky because when I when I broke my shoulders, uh, I was just a medical student, but now that I broke my foot I'm a doctor. Mm -hmm. And I know I know people, I read things and you know, I know the extent of the injury, I know the procedure, I know what they did, I know how they did the surgery, um and I know you know, how big of a task it is to get fit again but I'm determined to get to get back how are you emotionally dealing with with all of this are you are you okay um I mean I, I'm gonna say yeah I'm okay but you know on the inside you know it, it, it hurts you know what I mean like I I can't sleep at night because of the pain in the foot you know what I mean it's um it you know your foot's quite small um well mine's big but you know you it, it, it's a small area your foot and then to have a whole load of screws and pins put into a foot into those small bones um, I get nerve pain 
quite a lot now, which is normal. Some people lose sensation in their foot uh, or parts of their foot after the after this injury because of you know uh, all the all the different screws and bolts that they've put in, and I get constant um, shooting pain in my foot, which which always hurts, and the constant swelling and not sleeping at night, and you know what I mean, just not being able to do what I enjoy doing, which is training. You know what I mean? I can't I can't train. I can um, I can barely you know. Uh, I'm not going to even be able to to walk for three months. You know what I mean? It's so it's it's, it's pretty it's pretty tough. You know what I mean to deal with mentally. Do you have a desire to get back in the cage? I I do. You know what I mean? I, I really believe I can I can achieve something. You know I mean it was when I played rugby. I was when I first started playing rugby. I was like 15 years old and I played for my local boys team, Middlesbrough team, C team. I played for the C team. Right. And within eight months of playing for the C team, I had England under 16s trials, you know, within eight months of playing rugby. And when I came to university and I was playing for the rugby team, I said to my mates in, in halls, you know, I had one of them who was in my, uh, we were all in my dorm and they were like, well, what do you, what, what, what should we, you know, what do you want out of medical school? You know, we we're all asking ourselves, well, what do we want out of our university experience? And, you know, one of them was like, well, I just want to be... Uh, a bone doctor I want to be a radiologist I want to be a heart surgeon I want to achieve this they said well what do you want to do more and I just said to them I want to be a professional rugby player I want to be a doctor and I want to be a professional rugby player I want both and it's funny because when I played for the England team um, those same boys came to watch me they, they all came down to London and they came to watch when it was England against France and I was playing and they all came down to support me and after the game we all went out for food and we all sat down and we talked about this and then we were like we remember when we were all in our room and we were all talking about what we wanted and you said you wanted to be a professional rugby player and a doctor and we, and, and we laughed not in a kind of like yeah. in, in a bad way but just kind of a like come on boys you're being ridiculous here you know what I mean just you know think of something realistic to do and, went, and we all laughed and you did it you know what I mean? Um, and I always looked at it and I always just think, you know, it, 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 I know it's going to be an uphill struggle. You know what I mean? I'm working as a doctor. I've got an injury. It's a pretty bad injury. Um, I'm 29 years old. You know what I mean? I'm not getting, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a spring chicken per se. Um, and, I, you know, I've only had one fight and I lost. You know what I mean? Um, can I, can I come back? You know what I mean, and be successful. I believe I can. You know what I mean. I believe that I showed a lot of uh, courage and a lot of heart. You know what I mean. Not many people would could break a you know something in four different places and keep fighting on, but I did. You know what I mean. Um, and uh, you know, not many people can step in there and fight as a heavyweight in a cage with four arms gloves, but I did it. And, uh, you know, I, my opponent, he came up to me after the fight, you know, he shook my hand and he was like, you are like, you know, he was, he was like, well, he was like, yeah, he was like, I, I know we're going to see each other down the line. He, you know, he was congratulating me. He was like, you're, you're one of the toughest guys I've ever faced. And I, I, obviously I didn't know at the time, but I was like, you know, you faced me with a broken foot. You know what I mean? Imagine oh. if you faced, faced me without a broken foot, you know what I mean? Uh, it would have been a much more competitive fight. But in saying all of that, I still controlled the fight up until the last exchange when I went down. Mm. You know what I mean? Um, but, you know, like, I always think, you know, the one thing that's got me through this is I thought to myself, like, if you let this discourage you, this injury, um, and you let this injury make you quit, then you probably didn't have enough drive in you anyway. Mm. You know what I mean? To make okay. it, if you let that one hurdle get you down. You know what I mean? I mean, it's a big hurdle and it's a big thing. But if you let that be the the end of you you never really wanted it in the first place you know what I mean so man the story is 
fuck, just the beginning, really, in terms yeah. of in terms of where it is. You've already done so much. Usually, we finish the podcast with a message to the listeners or the audience, mm-hmm. or like some words of wisdom or something that you live by. But wanted to change this one up a bit, just in the aspect of. I know you got a lot of people back home, where wherever home may be for mm-hmm. your family, mm-hmm. different friends that you met along the way from. Mm-hmm. LA to UK to different parts of Europe yeah. to Palestine to Egypt mm-hmm. what's your what you obviously do it for a higher meaning everything you do from being a doctor mm-hmm. to the martial arts to mm-hmm. to showing a path what what do you want to say to those people that have all helped you get to where you are and will continue because I know for a fact you think about them every day mm-hmm. what do you want to say to them in terms of where you're at now where you want to be and what you all the people that you do it for uh, it, you know it's it's hard because um, we don't have much in this life and when I mean we don't have much I don't mean that we don't have cars and we don't have houses and so you know we have all of those things but they're all fleeting things they're all things that you can lose or, or take away you know the only thing that we really have in this life is, is each other yeah. you know and um, unfortunately the one thing that we always have in life is each other is we're not around each other you know what I mean um, and the reason why we, you know we do this is because we try and give meaning or we try and at least we, we try and uh, we try and justify why we why we're going through this struggle and that's by achieving things you know what I mean that's by working hard um, and that's by uh, and that's by doing something special um, so yeah I'm, I'm always doing it for them I'm always thinking about them the, yeah it's just it's, it's difficult it's, it's difficult it's really difficult to put into words yeah. um, I, because because they mean so much you yeah. know um, and, I, and it's hard because you know sometimes I feel like I fail them you know, um, and I don't want to feel like that, but I'm not going to give up yeah. because I, I know they're always with me and they're always going to support me and they always love me regardless of uh, of of how far I fall. Yeah, man, and that's what it's all about. I know that um, one of the main reasons that I wanted to get someone like you on the podcast is we get heaps of people, obviously, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we get a lot of successful people yeah. like yourself, but you find out a lot about someone when the chips are down for them Mm -hmm. you find out a lot about their mindset in terms of what they're willing to do Mm -hmm. and when I came and saw you a couple weeks back just after your surgery and I could see it in your eyes that there was 100% fire still there to Mm -hmm. do man if you don't get to do it again because the injury is too severe or anything like that it doesn't really matter because deep deep down within you you know exactly what you did to get there Mm -hmm. you know what happened in there and you know what your determination and drive mm-hmm. is to get back there, but if it doesn't go into that same path, it will go into it will just transition yeah. into something else. Great. So yeah. it's one of the real main reasons that I wanted to for people to hear your story and to to show that just that saying of how you do something is how you do everything because you you always go all in and no matter what you'll always end up up top. Yeah, due to that mind. So yeah, I mean, one hundred percent. You know, like always, all in, all the time. And you know, my 
we've already lost so much you know what i mean um my family me you know we've already lost so much and um because of that there's almost a no fear you know if we fail we were always meant to fail yeah you know what i mean if we don't succeed we were always not meant to succeed you know um and and i just there's there's this there's zero fear there's there's zero fear of failure for me you know what i mean yeah i broke my foot yeah you know it's been a struggle uh, getting back to work and stuff like that yeah i'm gonna have multiple surgeries again but you know what i've had four surgeries before yeah. you know what i mean i've went through 23 months of rehab and i came back and i won a world medal you know what i mean um and it's not just sport you know what i mean because i have plans greater than just doing things in sports you know what i mean i want to be the best doctor i can be um you know my plan is is in the future is, is i'm gonna be um a doctor that's gonna um, run hospitals in Africa and in, in South America and in the Middle East, and we're gonna do a lot of charity work over there. But in order to do that, you know, in order to help other people, you've got to put yourself in a position where exactly where you can do that. And you know, that's all part of it. You know what I mean? Sport is just something that I do for myself, and I do it to represent who I'm from, where I'm from, mm. and it's it's to make them proud. But you know, I also know that there's a there's a higher purpose here. Yeah. I want to leave this world in a much better state than when I came into it, um, and to do that, I've got to use the opportunities that God has given me. You know yeah. what I mean? And, and I, you know, I'm a, I'm a religious guy. I'm a spiritual guy, and you know, I always look at things and I say, you know, one day God's going to ask you, and He's going to say, you know, I made you big, and I made you strong, and I made you smart, and I made you this, and I made you that. What did you do with the yeah. gifts that I gave you? If I turn around to Him and I go, well, you know, I went to went to went to school. Uh, got paid a lot of money um, and I uh, you know had a wife and kids and we lived a quiet life in the countryside is it good enough he goes well you, this is where you came from this yeah. is where I took you from all of these people are, are waiting there and they need help and this that and the other and you've just you know selfishly went and took yourself and lived a nice quiet life in the countryside you know what I mean it, it's not good enough you know yeah. what I mean I actually really like that it's yeah, that's, sick, uh, that's awesome yeah, yeah. so uh, you know I know that um or I want to um, give back, you know, the blessings that I've had. And I want to make sure that a lot of people have that opportunity. And a big part of doing the sport is because I know, like you said, with the cultures that we live in, they they really are against sports yeah. and stuff like that. And, you know, w when I do the sports, it's, it's to, to represent our people, our struggle. Uh, because once they see you, they can relate to you. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's not enough, you know... All the taxi drivers, all the business owners, all the doctors, all the engineers, they're all foreign, you know, most of them yeah. are foreigners, you know what I mean? But, and they do an important part for society, but when we're talking about the forefront of society, if you had a, a world champion boxer, like Muhammad Ali, you know what I mean, a Muslim Muhammad Ali, when he came along, he was black, he was Muslim, he was, he, he pushed civil rights so much more forward just because of who he is and what he was doing. But there was probably a million doctors and they probably couldn't have moved the pencil the way that he did. You know what I mean? And that's what I mean. You've got to put you and it's like I said, you've got to put yourself in a position where you can fail. But I always look at it and I go, I've come from nothing. If I fail and I have nothing, I already started with nothing. You know what I mean? But am I going to sit here and walk away like a coward? You know what I mean? And, and not choose to try and better the, 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 the people around me, my environment, the world around me? Or... Um, or am I going to risk it all to try and help some other people? I'm going to risk it all. You know what I mean? Man. I love it, man. Thanks so much, bro. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having us. Yeah. I hope you inspired a lot of people whose chips might be down and they listen to your story and they're feeling a bit better and they're going to give it their all. 
yeah man yeah, man I, I hope so too man and and you know anyone out there that is going through some struggles or some hard times or anything like that you know just always remember you know um hard times don't last but uh hard people do so uh just keep uh keep grinding away keep working hard keep believing and uh you know just remember god has a plan for all of us um and you might not see it now, but honestly, one day you'll be thankful for all of these struggles that you've been through because they're going to make you the person that you will be or the person that you are. So I'm, you know, I, regardless of how difficult things are for me right now, honestly, I, I feel good. I feel really good deep down inside because I, I, like, I know this is all pushing me somewhere that I needed to go. And sometimes you need difficulties in life to push you in the right direction. You know what I mean? Unfortunately, as human beings, you know, we only really learn through pain. You know what I mean? You see kids, the way kids develop is they put a lot of things in their mouth or they touch a lot of things and they fall yeah. over or they get hurt or they touch things that they shouldn't and they get hurt. And that's how they learn. Essentially, they learn through pain. And, and we're kind of like that as adults, you know what I mean? But instead of, you know, touching this hot object as a kid and we don't know and then we pull our hand away and for a split second it hurts and we know not to touch that again. You know, as adults, it'll be like, dating the wrong person and then they take their house away and all the rest of it and then you know and you learn that way you know what I mean but but that's what we do as adults we make bigger mistakes you know what I mean and and but we learn it's all to push us in the right direction so just keep going keep keep moving and and you never know where it's going to end up sweet thanks, thanks brother. brother appreciate Cheers, it man. thanks guys thanks for having me